and welcome to episode seven of the Sanyu Sisters podcast. I'm Tista. And I'm Amber. And firstly, a big happy new year to you all. 2020 has been really one crazy year and we hope that however you've been able to spend it, you've had a restful break over this festive period. And wishing you all and your families a wonderful, happy and healthy 2021. We're so grateful that you're able to join us again today as we continue our journey learning how maternal and newborn specialists have sidestepped COVID to keep their research on track. Have you made any New Year's resolutions, Amber? Well, Tista, I'm certainly glad to be in 2021 and I just love that feeling of a fresh start and thinking about possibilities for the year ahead. I'm really excited and filled with actually a little bit of optimism for this year. I am a bit rubbish with resolutions, so and I do think it is though a good time to set some goals and just reevaluate where we're at. I guess all the usual things like getting a bit fitter, probably getting a bit slimmer are definitely at the forefront of my mind after a few sedentary months at home. Uh, I know I really want to try and become just more effective with my time and also I love being busy and love filling my time with lots of stuff but um, also I've kind of realised how important it is to just take a bit of a chill pill now and again so I'll there are a few things I'll be working on this year. What about yourself? I try and make resolutions every single year and usually by about March I end up breaking them yeah. or losing interest. <laughs> so this year instead of making a resolution to change something I'm going to try and make resolutions to continue doing things. Um, as you and the listeners know, I got back into running, so I'm hoping to continue doing this in 2021. Although I must admit, in the UK, the weather has definitely dropped recently, so getting yeah. out when it's minus one is definitely going to be a challenge in itself, but uh, <laughs> we'll see how we go. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I'm shivering just thinking about it. What about you at home, the listeners? Have you guys made any New Year's resolutions? If you haven't made one yet... You could take a leaf out of Tista's book and make a resolution to continue tuning in to our weekly podcast. Mm -hmm. We would absolutely love that. And our last episode was with Ashish KC and we've had some wonderful feedback from the listeners. So thank you all so much for tuning in. We were thrilled to hear that Professor Joy Lorne tuned in and enjoyed last week's episode. And we're so grateful for her shout out and support. Our Twitter takeover started some fantastic dialogues with Beth and Munraj from London, keen to hear more about dissemination strategies within community. And Ashish shared strategies that he's recently used, such as webinars to disseminate study results and e-interaction with social media and newspapers. However, Ankit from Nepal reached out and highlighted the need to reconsider our audience when sharing knowledge to ensure data and information is presented clearly and avoid misinterpretation. Additionally, with only a few episodes left of our current Sidestepping COVID series, we would love to hear from you on what topics you'd like to listen to next. Larry from London reached out who's loved the podcast and is keen for a future episode on advice and guidance for applying for PhDs. We're so keen to use this podcast to unite our global maternal and newborn health community. And so this feedback would be so helpful to us to direct where the Sanya sisters should go next. Please do follow us on Twitter at Sanyu Sisters or Instagram at Sanyu Sisters Podcast and share any thoughts that you might have. This week, Tista's chatting to Megan Kumar, an assistant professor of health economics at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine based out in Nairobi, and she'll be sharing her thoughts on the impact of COVID on being able to share and disseminate research. Let's have a listen to what Megan has to say. (music) 
I'm delighted to welcome Megan Kumar to join us today. Megan is an Assistant Professor of Health Economics at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and has been based out of Nairobi in Kenya since 2011. She has a huge wealth of experience of mixed methods research in multiple low and middle income countries and she's recently completed her PhD looking specifically at the economic evaluation of quality improvement in community health programmes. She's currently working within the NEST 360 partnership, aiming to improve newborn outcomes in sub-Saharan Africa. And if that's not enough, she and her husband are founders of the Health eNet, which is an absolutely fascinating enterprise that provides a unique digital platform for remote rural communities to link in and be able to access high quality medical consultations. They hope that with this work, they're able to build stronger, more equitable health systems globally. Given her digital savviness, we are so excited to be able to speak to her and hear her thoughts on the impacts of COVID on being able to share and disseminate research. So welcome, Megan. How are you doing? I'm wonderful, thanks, and happy to be here with you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So to begin with, can you tell us a little bit more about your work within the NEST 360 study? Sure. So um, I joined the NEST 360 team about six months ago, so I was one of those lucky people to start a new job in the middle of lockdown uh, in May of this year. And that's that was both a, a challenge and an opportunity, I guess. So my work with the team involves supporting our four country teams in Nigeria, Kenya, Malawi, and Tanzania to do their an economic evaluation of their work. But it's not simply an academic exercise of, of cost effectiveness, although that's important for decision-making But there's a major component as well around understanding who are the decision makers in this space, what kind of financing could be available, and how do we make an effective argument, an investment case around that work. And finally, there's a piece to help the the facilities and the districts who are working now under the whatever set of constrained resources they have to say, how can we plan to, to be as efficient as possible with the resources we have, given that we're not living in a perfect world and we have to make do. So that's uh, that's the work that I'm doing now in the newborn space. And I'm very excited to be working with such an expert team of inventors and policymakers uh, and clinicians all around the world. Mm, sounds fascinating. And, and being able to collaborate with so many different disciplines as well um, is such a fantastic opportunity. Yeah. During the pandemic, have you found any uh, new platforms to share any of your research outcomes or research findings? Well, beyond the everybody's Zoom fatigue. <laughs> um, I think that one of, one of the big areas that we're trying to explore is um, both mural and Jamboard. Um, so ways of engaging with people in a little more interactive setting beyond question and answer. Um, so we, in my work, it's often medium-sized groups of people that need to work together to brainstorm around things to figure out a a way forward. Um, A lot of the work that I have done and continue to do is around quality improvement. And that requires building consensus, uh, you know, digging down to find out what the root cause of of an issue is and then trying to find ways to solve it. So we haven't, uh, we don't have one answer that's worked everywhere, but we have been trying some new things and it's been an exciting opportunity, I think, to think about digital facilitation, you know, reducing our carbon footprint. Uh, in the past, we would travel to, to gather in person, and there are still a lot of things that, that are missed in that setting, but I think we're trying to figure out ways to 
to overcome the challenges of being separate where we are right now. You've touched upon some specific strategies that you've tried. Can you share any of those with us? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess one of the strategies is in the past, often the work of collaboration, if you're working in a multi-country research and implementation program, would happen in these intense, short, in-person bursts. So, you know, you have a one-week consortium meeting or you meet at some conference or, you know, somebody comes into country from wherever they're working and you have that chance to, to kind of pull on their expertise and spend a lot of time together. What has been happening in the pandemic is that that work has been stretched out over time a bit. So instead of having one intense week, you might have a longitudinal engagement over a much greater period of time. And that has it has costs and benefits. Uh, I guess an economist will always give you that answer. But, um, you know, there, there are a lot of good things about it because you are giving your brain that time to mull things over, to, to see how it relates to the other work in your portfolio, the other engagements with policymakers that you're already doing. You know, you let also people who don't think as well on the fly um, to have more of a chance and a voice in the process. So there are definitely things that, that we, we see as improvements, but it's hard to engage, especially with busy policymakers. I think that's been the, the hardest part um, is to gain that, that kind of traction where they're not part of the project team and they might not be thinking about this over the intervening weeks and months. They're only thinking about it kind of when we're together. Are there any digital approaches that you've taken to be able to do this, to engage, as you say, with policymakers and to share your work? Well, recently I attended the health systems research meeting, and I'm sure several of your listeners um, will have been part of that platform as well. And they've taken a similar approach where they had an an intense period of um, engagement over three or four days, but they're having another period uh, coming up, I think, next week for a couple more days, and then another period in December, and then a final, they hope to have an in-person gathering uh, sometime around March or April of next year, I believe. So multiple smaller events that lead up to a bigger event. Yeah, yeah. And then um, I'm I'm helping UNICEF to convene a webinar series around quality of care and community health systems and quality improvement in that space. And again, you know, trying to link conferences to webinars so that we have this. So these webinars will come maybe every two weeks in the spring, and then there will be a separate conference that's already planned but is related that it will link to. So I think people are thinking a little more critically about not trying to stand as an independent event and to really interlink with other initiatives to try to build some momentum when when that in-person spark isn't there. Yeah, and I suppose on the flip side, although there's been significant energy and enthusiasm to engage with these multiple platforms in order to share knowledge and get information out there. There is another concern that are we putting out too much information? Is there an increase in noise? And should we be a little bit more critical about the evidence or knowledge that we are putting out? Yes, there's a lot of there's a lot of noise. And, you know, I don't know what the statistic is, but I know that somebody has stated, you know, over the first whatever it is, the initial period of human history, we created this much um, data. And then now it's like every 25 hours, we create that much data. Everybody is a creator now, right? But I don't know what the alternative is. I think one of the 
big benefits of making everybody a creator is that we have given space to some voices that we wouldn't already hear. I've been based in Kenya for the last nine years, but I'm a citizen of the U.S. You know, I'm a I'm a white woman. I have a lot of privilege in my life, um, so I I feel like having a chance to democratize the space of information creation. Yes, you have to make choices about what you engage with as a as a listener, but it's better to have the chance to to hear things that you wouldn't otherwise hear. And I think similarly with these conferences that are being held virtually, yes, it's a headache to, you know, get up at 4 a.m. to hear a meeting that's happening in Dubai or, you know, in Australia, but you know, is the alternative that you don't get to go because there's only travel money for two people in your project. So maybe, yeah, it's hard and we can't engage with everything, but I I don't know that I think it's a bad thing. You're absolutely right. There is then a huge inequity that exists, not only for the access of the information at these um, conferences and other events, but actually also in diluting the voices and experiences that are actually being shared. Just on the topic of these platforms you've been describing, such as the virtual conferences and virtual meetings, how accessible have you found that these have been for your colleagues in Kenya? Have they engaged um, and wanted to be part of this virtual space? Or actually, are they keen for more face-to-face or a hybrid of both? I would say that certainly I've seen more engagement probably from colleagues in uh in in my region than in colleagues uh, from the north. Uh, I think that people are really um, certainly embracing this space. So for example, in Nest 360, the Kenya team has done some wonderful webinars um, on clinical education that were planned to be in person. And again, it has really allowed more people to attend. Um, They've been very well received. The attendance has exceeded our expectations. So not only have people been engaging in these global um, sessions, but they've been organizing them. You know, we've been doing them ourselves. Work needs to go on. And so, so I think that largely people have engaged well and that people are very keen. I mean, of course, there are the, the normal issues when there's heavy rains and the power goes out. But I think on the whole... It's been, um, yeah, it's been a really positive, uh, I've been surprised at how much the leadership has indeed come from from the country team saying, we can do this virtually, let's give it a try. That is brilliant to hear. If you were to advise or maybe give some tips to um, junior researchers that are trying to think of ways that they can get their uh, research out there at the moment, what would you suggest to them? <laughs> it is a noisy world, as you've said. Um Getting, I guess, getting your research out there. For me, if you want your research to be used, the best way to do that is to engage from the outset with the people you think might use it. Mm-hmm. It's not always possible, but to start out with understanding, you know, the person in the Ministry of Health or the person, you know, in the district health management team that you think is the most likely whether it's an archetype of that person across the districts of the country where you work, or whether it's a specific individual that you know, you know, it's this permanent secretary of such and such. So trying to find ways to understand their, you know, their pain points in their work, their motivations, maybe the the targets that the country has set or the district, or what is it that, that makes them work? And then if you can engage with them in reality to say, 
I'm thinking about this issue. I have this piece of funding or this piece of data that I want to take your, you know, DHIS2 data and look at the link between X and Y. Mm-hmm. So, so I think uh, this co-production of knowledge, this co-creation makes an automatic appetite for the evidence you generate. My work has always been very much implementation research. So it's, uh, it's maybe harder for me to speak to, to those research projects that are, you know, coming maybe without people being aware of them who might use the evidence. I think certainly, you know, Twitter has become a really active space for sharing research outputs. And indeed, you know, there are ways to make your your research speak louder in terms of whom you tag and how you spread it, whether you do a thread of your key findings, whether you link it to other people's work, you get the journal to share it out. So There's lots of those kind of small strategies, but if you haven't engaged on Twitter at all, and then you suddenly decide to tweet something about your work, it's not likely to to go viral. A very good point. The fire has to start from somewhere. Yeah, and I think that that space is also one where, you know, there's Epi Twitter and Econ Twitter, and there's all these different subgroups where if you do have methodological questions or things you're thinking about you you don't have to wait until you have a publication to to engage with people like for me i started following people that i knew worked in my field and i respected and for, at first i was just reading what they said and then now and again i would respond to what they said but i still wasn't doing much tweeting of my own and maybe i would retweet things and then slowly i started responding and then started sharing my own ideas and questions and then finally when I was ready to share my own publications. Then it was like, okay, people already knew who this person is. And I said, oh yeah, she's doing this work. It makes sense that this is coming out. I'm interested in following that up. So I, I certainly don't have a big following, um, but, but I know the people that I'd like to be followed by and I'm uh, engaging with them and their organizations where I can. No, and I think that's super helpful. The concept of Twitter and even social media for academics, especially early career academics, it's daunting and it feels almost a bit exposing to put yourself out there and also your views, which you're still kind of solidifying yeah. yourself and trying to work out what you what you think and what your ideas are. It can be overwhelming. And I think your your <laughs> advice of, of sort of actually taking it slow is actually super helpful to hear. Yeah, I would say that it's okay to not have made up your mind. And if you're a scientist, your views and on things are supposed to evolve as you get more evidence and information. So it's you don't have to know everything now. You know as much as you know and you're you know, your experience is valid. And if you feel like you need to say, this is based on, you know, my master's work, is there anything else I should be thinking about? That's okay too. It's okay to, to, to make yourself, I think one of the characteristics of really good leaders is saying when, when you don't know things and being able to admit that you're not an expert on everything and nobody expects that. That's true. How do you think other people have engaged you with their research? So when you have been either attending a conference or you've been attending any of these virtual spaces, how has somebody grabbed your attention to read something? Yeah, I guess there's three ways, maybe. The first one is, as I was saying, you know, if somebody that I think is a a really 
important researcher that I value their views on things. If they're sharing something, then I'm more likely to have a look at it. Um, so using them as kind of a bellwether of what uh, what might be valuable if I haven't been able to review all the articles, um, as you say, in this noisy world. Um, so that's one. Um, in the virtual meeting that I attended, they had a, a meeting hub. And so one of the one of the things that they did was for the Africa region, there was a, a mixer sort of a time. So anybody who was doing health systems research in the Africa region jumped into this room and then you got shuffled and reshuffled in sort of a researcher speed dating uh, experience, which it had its pros and cons. Um, you know, connectivity was an issue. The length of time maybe wasn't quite enough, but it did give a taste of who's out there, what are they doing? And then out of a couple of those things, we had some, um, you know, some quick phone calls in the meeting room immediately following that session, because then you could set up a one-to-one -one call. So that was a really good way of making people interact and not just sit and passively listen to the accepted posters and presentations. Um, so that has worked really well. And then the last one for me, because I'm, I've been starting, uh, a new post, I've also been having virtual coffees with people. And so I've been just kind of following, uh, I don't know, if I were talking about it in, in qualitative research, I might say a, a snowballing approach to finding the people in my new organization who might be working on things that are related to my areas of interest. And so I track some people down and say, hey, we should talk about this. And then they say, oh, but you really need to talk to so-and-so as well. And so having those spaces, although people are tired of, you know, group calls sometimes because there are a lot of them happening, um, somehow the one-on-one -on -one meetings feel a lot different. You don't have a specific agenda. You're genuinely interested in the person on the other end and just for the, the value of knowing about them and their work. And that feels really validating in a time when sometimes these, uh, these, these, anonymous sort of meetings can get to be draining. I think that one-on-one -on -one meeting idea is fantastic because you're absolutely right. There's a very different feel than sitting on a Zoom call with, you know, 10 other people. How well have your colleagues sort of taken to that idea or people that you've reached out to have taken to that idea? It's always a mix. And I suppose it's like being on a dating app. Um, you know, some people get excited and, you know, they say, yes, let's meet. And I'm so interested in your work and, wow, this is great. And, you know, sometimes you think you're going to be interested and then you meet and it's sort of 15 minutes and you're like, great, thanks for meeting me. You know, it's been fun. Um, and that's okay. Like, I think as long as you don't view, don't, don't view it as a personal judgment. Um, it's just a chance to know a bit more of some more people and, even the, you know, I think for the, the more senior folks in the organization where maybe time is at more of a premium, I've, I haven't gone to them directly. So I've spoken to other people in their groups. And then if they say, hey, you should talk to professor so-and-so, then I say, great, can you introduce us? Can you put us in touch and say why you think that's a good idea so that I'm not just cold calling um, people. <laughs> so that that's helped out too. But I think, um, you know, when you're starting a new post and people are really, people are really sensitive to the fact that it's hard to, to come into a new place. So I think in the first six months, I have had this window of opportunity to just say, I don't know about this. I'm new. Please, you know, help me out. And, and mostly there are helpers as 
as Fred Rogers said, the helpers are out there. You need to look for them. And, and yeah, they've, they've stepped up. Fascinating actually hearing you, Megan, talk about how actually engagement and trying to share knowledge has become more of a dialogue with people as opposed to the traditional way that, that, that we get research or knowledge out there is to publish a paper or mm. publish a series. How relevant do you think publications are, um, especially in the age that we are right now and with the pandemic? When I entered my PhD, I was a mid-career. I mean, I had about 10 years of research experience. So in some sense, I had the naive idea that I would be able to do it and it would be more or less like what I was already doing. I would just walk out with a degree at the end of it. And I will say that the process of writing for an academic audience or writing for peer review was an important learning for me to be able to understand what's already been done. So not to, to assert things, mm -hmm. to condense my thinking into, you know, a shorter space. I don't have an indefinitely long report to write. I have to fit it into 3000 or 4,000 words. Um, there are a lot of problems with the static publication certainly and with the publication as the only metric of success um so i as i said i, I believe really strongly in co-creation of, of research evidence and so to me a publication is a thing that i will do at some point and i will work with my policymaker partners and implementation partners to make sure that it reflects their views and opinions but it's not the it's not the goal of the program. The goal of the program is to say, does this work? How much does it, you know, what are the resources it takes to do it? Is it worth those resources? What are the trade-offs? And then, you know, how do we build it from the beginning so that if we decide it does work and it is worth it, that it can keep going? And so, you know, we will need things like costing tools. We will need things like infographics and policy briefs and, you know, investment cases. And so there will inevitably be publications that happen. And that's one of the categories of, of information transmission that is useful. Um, but it's not, certainly it's not the be all and, and end all. And I think that those organizations that have been exploring, you know, ways to have, for example, moving models engaged in a uh, uh, developed and, and presented as part of a publication. If it's going to be read online anyway, it's easy to have a moving graphic mm -hmm. and not to have something static. So there are things that can be done pretty easily within the publication space, as well as encouraging scientists to, to be communicators. I think that it's selling everybody short if you don't communicate your research to a variety of audiences. It's, um, it's imperative. And I view it as like uh, as as a moral obligation of of my work. Great to hear what you were talking about it's about building on these publications and trying to find yes, okay, you'll publish, but actually, what else can we do to piggyback on top of that to make it more applicable and engaging to, as you say, a wide set of audience? You discussed moving models. Are there any other sort of tips and tricks that you've you've used to try and engage further? I guess the other the other key piece is the relationships piece. These relationships aren't built overnight and it doesn't matter what good intentions one has coming to, you know, set up a new research program that's going to revolutionize eye health in Lesotho, right? Like 
it's not somebody coming from outside and telling you that this is the new great thing. It's being able to say, here's the situation in your country. I understand it. You know, I'm living and working here, or if not, that I'm working with researchers here who know the context, who know the challenges, who know the, you know, the root causes of some of these things. It may not be the same reason as it is in Nairobi, right? And even between Nairobi and rural Kenya, the reasons for problems are very different. Um, so I think people who know the place and, and the systems and the approaches, it doesn't mean you can't challenge existing systems, but it means mm -hmm. that you've shown that you're not just parachuting in to, to present some solution that was devised in a laboratory somewhere in the north or, you know, mm -hmm. in your workshop. It's you knowing the place, understanding the issues, talking about where people are starting from. Because it's not just where do we mm -hmm. want to go, it's where are we now. And if you know where they are now and you work together mm -hmm. to define a pathway to where everybody can agree we want to go, then it's a lot more likely that, you know, that the evidence you generate is going to be used. And like you say, it's really important that we engage and collaborate with those in country to define that path and the direction that we're going. You've given us a really great overview, Megan, on lots of different strategies that we can use to disseminate and share knowledge in an engaging fashion. How would you say that your strategies have shifted in light of the pandemic? That's a very good question. I don't feel that it has changed the values that underpin my approach to, um, to sharing evidence and, and indeed creating evidence and, and sharing it and disseminating it. I think it has made me more conscious of the opportunities to share it beyond in-person settings. You know, in future work, will I want to visit the countries where I'm working beyond Kenya? Absolutely. Like it has certainly also solidified the value of working in person um, and, and engaging personally with things and showing the, the commitment of just showing up. On top of that, it also means that when that's not possible, I won't be waiting for the next time that I get to go somewhere um, to, to really think about these other ways of engagement. So I guess it's given me um, an appreciation that a hybrid approach, so using both the in-person uh, when it's safe to, to move around and also engaging over time, sustaining that, um, that interest could potentially have a, a greater value both to the individuals who are already engaged as well as widening the circle of people that could be involved. And if you were to give one positive lesson that you've learned from the pandemic that you're going to take forward to your future work about sharing and disseminating knowledge, what would you say that would be? Maybe if you want to distill it to one thing, it might just be don't be shy. Um, you know, you don't have to feel bad about interrupting busy people. You can be strategic about how you approach them and you can think about different tools and, and you know avenues and how to go through your network. But at the end of the day, you are an interesting person too. Um, your work is valuable. 
you're adding to the evidence base, you're adding to, you know, you're trying to make a better world. That's why, that's why we're doing research. We want to understand how things work and, and make them work better. And so, you know, don't be shy and don't take it personally if people don't respond. You know how your inbox looks. It's not that they don't want to talk to you. Maybe they just missed it. Um, you know, maybe somebody in their family has COVID. Maybe their kid is home from school because of a case of COVID in their bubble. Like, it's not personal. So keep reaching out and, and be confident that, uh, that your work has value. That's amazing. Thank you so much. That's such a brilliant point to end on. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, Megan. Thank you so much for joining us on our Sunny Sisters podcast. Thank you too. I really enjoyed it. So Amber, what stuck out to you the most from what Megan shared? Well, my goodness, what a woman. I feel like I would love to get Megan in a room and just continue that chat with her and pick her brains. So much of what she said was encouraging and useful and definitely thought-provoking personally. I think how she described her involvement with the UNICEF webinar series and linking them into an upcoming conference, which also links to another relevant meeting, was just a helpful reminder that rather than having standalone events, but a collaborative approach um, is something that we need to adapt and take forward. And it makes me think of um, a bit of a jigsaw puzzle if we think of global maternal and newborn health as the ultimate picture that we're trying to build, that each of these individual things that we are doing um, fits together so nicely with something else and and builds that, that picture as another piece in the jigsaw. So, yeah, I thought that was really helpful. I also loved her comments um, that she finished up with Things like, don't be shy, your work's important, people aren't too important to listen to you. I mean, ultimately, as um, researchers, we're trying to understand this world better. We're trying to make it a better place. And I think what she said about don't take things personally, um, you know, if people don't get back to you immediately or whatever. I know as someone who's generally quite a confident person, um, but very much an early career researcher it's in the academic world that I'm probably my least confident and most shy so that really spoke to me and encouraged me and it just reminded mm. me as well to a time last year when I sent an email out to a lot of senior people within my area of research just asking them for some of their time to catch up and have a quick chat about something and I was taken aback when they all got back to me and agreed um, to speak to me so it was just a, a reminder that actually she is right in what she's saying so thanks to Megan for that encouragement and that reminder this week absolutely it was a real pleasure to speak and learn from Megan during the interview and I think she gave some really honest and supportive advice for early career researchers like ourselves um, mm-hmm. I too was really inspired and I think she would be a fantastic mentor to have Um, I loved her thoughts on interactive engagement with platforms such as Mural and Jamboard, which I haven't heard of. Um, Essentially, they seem to be these platforms that can be used to brainstorm and build ideas within large teams virtually. And from speaking to friends, I understand that they have been used readily even outside academics, particularly in the pandemic, where bringing large groups of people together for one big face-to-face meeting has been impossible. Um, Long term, as Megan said, grappling with digital facilitation and new innovations is key, Um, not only as we're trying to reduce our carbon footprint, but also it widens our inclusivity and global involvement Mm -hmm. to voices that perhaps may not have been heard before. So this is something I'll definitely look to use more going forward. 
Um, I also loved how Megan discussed the importance of first identifying your target audience of who your research output is aimed at. Is it a policymaker? Is it a clinician? Um, and then co-creating a research question together. I think this is really practical advice as implementation is a key foundation within many projects in global health, especially um, as what we want to do is to create something that is as useful as possible. Um, and so engaging early with those who'd be likely to use the output of our research, and as Megan puts it, to co-produce this work together seems an incredibly sensible first step. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just building on what you said, Amber, about this, these linkages that are so important to create, I think I totally agree. The more we do this and create these connections across themes, the more we see that global maternal and newborn health picture as a continuum where all parts mm-hmm. of the processes are intrinsically linked and the bettering of one part feeds into the bettering of other parts. Ultimately, this has the potential to create the greatest impact in global health. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with you there, Tista. What did you think at home? If you've enjoyed today's episode, we would love you to get in touch and let us know on our Twitter at Sanyu Sisters or Instagram at Sanyu Sisters Podcast. We really want to keep that conversation going and I'm sure there's plenty more that you may have picked up on that you wish to discuss further. And next week, Amber will be speaking to Benjamin Black, an obstetrics and gynecology consultant and specialist advisor at Medicine Sans Frontier, on the collateral damage COVID has had on progressing important and often neglected topics in global maternal and newborn health. We can't wait for you to join us then. Until next time. <laughs>